0: Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode three, and it's a special one because it's not just me talking. I have a celebrity guest. It's the author of this month's book, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, a mindfulness-based approach for tackling the many problems of the brain, including anxiety. My guest, Dr. Stephen Hayes, is the godfather of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and is a huge figure in the therapeutic world. I'm so honored and grateful to have him as my guest, and I hope you enjoy our chat. Yeah, so thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and talking to me today. Uh, so obviously, I'm Josh Molina, and this is the Anxiety Book Club podcast, episode number three. Um, and today we're talking about this really large, uh, not in length, but in width um workbook that i bought called get out of your mind and into your life and um it's written by today's guest stephen hayes um who is a professor and um researcher and scientist and uh can i say sort of like the godfather of act is that appropriate
1: (laughs) well i usually uh don't allow people to call me the developer only the co developer but i was the originator so i kind of way i say it is like a little match that started a little fire and then a whole bunch of people put logs on it and now it's a bonfire so i didn't make
0: the bonfire but i did light the match so you're the original arsonist
1: yep that's exactly right and uh for reasons that have to do with your podcast
0: oh okay um yeah well thanks so much for lighting that match because uh the workbook um i've been really enjoying um especially the cognitive diffusion strategies um sure a, a lot of which are kind of fun to do um so i'll just say because we don't know each other that well so i've had anxiety for a long time um mostly in the ocd variety and it's only right. been in the past couple of years that i've started to really think about working on it and i first heard of act um, this past summer I was at the OCD Foundation's conference in Austin, Texas, and there was a session on Act and it sounded amazing um, because of its focus on values and decision making, which is something I struggle with. So um, that's that's kind of why I, I picked up the book. Sure. Yeah, well, I you know I come by this interest honestly as well.
1: I had a panic disorder that kind of led the development of Act. Uh, long ago uh back in uh, um, nineteen seventy eight to nineteen eighty one and uh the first act workshop was in nineteen eighty two coming out of my uh hitting bottom inside that panic disorder but i also have a connection to the o c d world a i've had my own small struggles didn't uh, you know they really <clears throat> were handled pretty well by the ACT methods and they, they sort of crept up on me more after ACT was being developed. But my mom was clinically OCD. And, uh, I mean, to the point of bloody hands and, and the whole nine yards. And, um, I've only recently learned a little more about her own history and part of where that energy came from. Um, she died some years ago at the age of 93, but, um, over time, she learned to handle her anxiety struggles in a reasonably healthy way. But uh, as a kid growing up, boy did I see some real struggles there uh, with my mom and my dad as well, who had an anxiety disorder and tried to treat it with alcohol, and then created another problem. So uh, we're all fellow travelers, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's you know hard to hear, but also. Um, you know uh, sort of I guess glad to hear it I guess because it 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 led you to create this system that's obviously benefiting a lot of people
1: well and there's a message in there I think just for normal folks it's hard to say it in a way that doesn't sound reassuring or patronizing one but I do I try to time it better when I'm working with clients who have anxiety problems but I do actually say you know you're you're one of the lucky ones because People can walk through their entire lives just kind of, quote, managing, unquote, their negative emotions or difficult emotions, especially anxiety. And in doing that, very often are missing the lesson that's buried right there, right in front of them, that is life enhancing and that will help in so many areas of life, of relationships and work and having fun. And so... uh, I know it can sound reassuring or patronizing, but I would say to people who are listening because they're interested in, you know, the Anxiety book, uh, Books uh, podcast uh, because of their own struggles with anxiety, that inside that struggle, there's something that is really important, useful to learn, and massively helpful in almost every area of life. So, uh, you know, maybe this huge problem is actually a blessing in disguise if you know how to find what's inside it.
0: So uh, that, sounds, that sounds great. And I think it's funny that um, the word assuring, maybe it has a somewhat negative connotation. Um, at least I know that in the OCD world, assurance is not something you should be looking for because uh, the emotions themselves, while scary, are not dangerous. So Um, seeking reassurance and reassurance has this
1: message. I'm strong. You're not, I know you don't, you can rely on me because, and very often the people giving reassurance, they've not been inside these problems. They've not actually had it show up the way it showed up for you. And of course your mind knows that it's tracking that. So yeah, you temporarily feel reassured and then you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, that person's not just like me. I know they said they have anxiety, but they have a different anxiety. Maybe it's not the same as my anxiety. I bet you if they oh, I have a different kind. I'm special, I'm especially bad. I've never, you know, like you're right on the edge of, you know, let's fall off the cliff yet again, you know, because the mind doesn't like reassurance. I mean, it, it contains a message that is, uh, ultimately very often very short-lived and even harmful. And I would rather say, you know, dude, there's something really important here. And, you know, your mind is not your friend. It's not your enemy either. But that part of you that says, give me the reassurance, give me the reassurance, give me assurance," you know, if you just look at the arc of it, no, you didn't really kill anyone with those germs. No, you didn't run over anyone. That was a thump over a speed bump. You didn't run over a body, you know, on and on and on it goes. And that's not the, that's not the liberation of these processes. It's exactly how the processes come to tie you down, chain you down, put you in a cage and take your life away. So um, be careful because you may be feeding a tiger that then gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it just wants to eat you, you know, it won't be satisfied with the, uh, you know, count to seven or, you know, it, it, as long as you do it twice or whatever the freaking thing may be, it's not going to stop
0: there. The anxiety
1: monster knows how to eat everything if
0: you feed Yikes. it. Yeah. It's pretty counterintuitive, right? Cause you know, Seeking out reassurance or asking your loved ones if everything is going to be okay, it sounds innocent. Yeah, who enough.
1: wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't do that? But you know, and it's even okay to a degree, but you can sense when you've been around the bush a bunch of times. I mean, you know, you're just like, Oh, is this new? I've done this before. How did it really work? Did it work long term? And right there in your own experience or answers like actually this was part of the grease on the wheels to more of the same. You know, and and so why do something that doesn't work in the long run? Let's go for larger later, not smaller sooner. Smaller sooner is, you know, the way we walk into traps. Because, of course, each little step seems sensible. And so it, it, in a way, it's not counterintuitive. It's kind of countermindy, because because your, your mind wants to turn your life into a problem to be solved. And it takes your own emotions and categorize them as bad and therefore to be gotten rid of. There's an intuitive part of you that's more experiential. So if you really are going intuitive, then I would say rely on your intuition when I ask you this question. Is this really going to help long term? And you wait for half a second, you know, the answer is no. Well, then don't do it. Don't do it. I get your mind says you have to. Thank your mind for that thought. Come back to your own experience. What does your experience tell you? And don't get into an argument with you. I mean, if you had a two-year-old tantruming, you don't want to argue with them. It's only going to make the tantrum louder. And meanwhile, you you got work to do instead of focusing on two-year-olds. There's a part of your mind that knows the deals you're trying to make. If you say, well, just this time. You know, the part of you that knows how to make it not just this time, but every time is listening. It knows what you're thinking. So you can't trick yourself. This is not some fool your way into health fantasy. We've all got those. We've tried to live them. If you've had anxiety struggles, you know. You've tried to compromise, buy out, make deals, avoid. And uh, almost always, if you ask people, that's part of the history of digging your way in,
0: not walking your way out. Um, I have to say that the, the anxious person in me is pretty scared at your description of the mind. It sounds like one or maybe many wrong steps and you sort of find yourself in a place that's hard to get out of.
1: Well, doing what's logical, reasonable, and sensible is also doing what's pathological. Think about it. And of course, you realize that has to be true because because you started out doing what was logical, reasonable, and sensible, Right. I mean, you had a problem, you noticed it, you noticed it, it was small, and it was just getting big enough that it was interfering, and you said, you yeah, know, I've got to do something about this. And you did what was logical, reasonable, and sensible, and it got bigger. And then you did more of that, and it got bigger yet. and You got more of that, and it got bigger yet. You know, so it's a trick of mind, it's an illusion, it's not because your mind is evil, you don't have a devil inside your head, it's nothing like that. It's just that we're dealing with an evolutionary mismatch, What you and I are doing is only a couple hundred thousand to a couple million years old, and the things you're struggling with are half a billion years old. It's a thousand times more ancient. So when anxiety is a response system that is there to keep being eaten from lions and tigers and bears and stuff. Have you seen any recently down your street? But no. when you get talking, which is really recent evolutionarily, I mean, the language-trained chimps don't do what your 12-month-old baby will do. And what your 12-month-old baby does that indicates it's on the path that could lead us to have a podcast and chat together is a really simple skill. But if it, they, if babies don't learn it, they're language-disabled for life. So we kind of know that's in the ACT work people in the basement, the relational frame theory folks. Uh, And that's one where I even will say I'm uh, the originator, developer, inventor, etc., even though a lot of people helped because it came more fully just out of my own uh, work. But, uh, you know, we're playing around with a mismatch between verbal problem solving, which is great for doing your taxes or fixing your car, But it's horrible for peace of mind, purpose, love, uh, wholeness. And it's just horrible at it. It's just no good at it. It'd be like trying to hit a baseball by by shouting the word swing. You know I mean? You could do it, but the ball's not going anywhere. And um, learning the difference between what the mind's good for and what it isn't. When problem solving is useful when it isn't. You know, when the voice within is helpful when it isn't is really much more of an intuitive experiential process than it is a figure out the rule book process. Because when you go to the rule book, guess which part of you you're talking to? You're talking to the dictator between your ears, and it's the one that got you in this mess to begin with. There ain't no dogs and cats that are counting out to sevens before they can leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just not happening. We're the only ones. And, you know, everyone, don't be feeling like you're the lonely one. If you, I'm going in the OCD direction because of your own history. But, you know, kids go through a, a phase, step on a crack, you'll break your grandmother's back, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Every single child goes through the magic of language. And they are right on the cusp of what you'd have to do to really seriously head in an OCD direction. And then usually normal development carries you in another direction. But it's not like you don't know how to do it. We all know how to do it yeah i sometimes show this to I, this will sound evil i probably shouldn't say it you're really gonna think i'm mean and bad but i used to show this i stopped doing it because it felt so harsh like by, by talking to a group when i'm saying don't be thinking it doesn't apply to you and they're saying oh no i don't have ocd i've never have struggled with that i'll say i can tell you what uh give me the names of the people you love give me at least three and they'll give you three and i say stand up everybody's looking at them and, and i say okay here's what i want you to say out loud really loud I hope over the next few minutes that, and then I name the names, will die. No one will do it. No one will do it. Well, you, you think the sounds coming out of your mouth are like magic? You think they're like going like to go through the ether and stab the person? What are you talking about? No, it's because that's how far away from OCD we are. Everybody is just like a hair's width away, and they're pretending as if, oh, you know, does it have anything to do with me? Yes, it does. This is how the mind works. It goes into magical thinking, and it uses its problem solving, and normally you can kind of get away with that. But when you step into the pile of pony poop you step into, when you step into OCD, you learn that, no, nah, no, actually – Having your mind set up to do things like that is like having a bear trap in the corner of the living room open and ready to spring. You better learn the skills as to how to get out of that bear trap because you're going to need it someday. And maybe it's not going to be OCD, but maybe it's going to be when your girlfriend dumped you. Maybe it's going to be when you got fired from work. Maybe it's going to be when you got that cancer diagnosis. You know, things happen. And um, anxiety is part of it. And the mind is part of it, but you better learn the owner's manual as to how to drive this car because uh, during certain times, doing things that are logical, reasonable, and sensible will get you into trouble.
0: Yeah. uh, I have a mindfulness teacher who I think is maybe quoting John Kabat-Zinn who said something like, you've got to sew your parachute before you jump. Yeah, which I think exactly. sort of describes that kind of preparation that that seems uh, that seems pretty important. So uh, we've gotten really deep really quickly, and I'm wondering yeah. if you could um, sort of just give a high-level overview of what ACT is all about. Sure will. You know, um,
1: there's different ways that we can uh, talk about this. One is just, just kind of go through the... The list of psychological flexibilities, uh, processes, uh, and kind of explain them and show they might apply. But I think maybe in the spirit of the way we started, which was pretty fast out of the blocks, how about if I give you kind of a, a metaphor and then we can unpack it? Sure. You, you know, ACT is uh, kind of like uh, this situation in which uh, you have a a powerful uh, urge to do something. And as soon as you do, uh, things kind of fall apart. And if you could slow it down, you would know that that's going to happen. So I'll give you an an example. If you had, if I said, here, I want you to sit down, I'm going to flip a a little card into your lap and what you needed to do is you kind of had need to sit and allow it to land and then you could look at what's there suppose you really hated things being tossed at you you hated it uh, it would take a lot to keep from swatting away the cards that are flipping towards you it'd be easy to swat them away why don't you do it i mean it Well, it's like that. Act takes these moments where life is asking you to do something unusual, and it helps you to have the presence of mind, to be able to notice things coming towards you and allow them to sort of fall in your lap and be able to see them and learn from them, and then lift your head up and focus on what's of importance there, and then do what's there to be done without... Putting yourself in this posture, I'll only be able to stand up, look up, move ahead, and do something useful. When I learn to swat all these uh, cards, this person's flipping towards me away. And no matter how much you do it, they keep throwing cards. And the faster you do it, the faster they throw it. It's like that. Act is a combination of acceptance and mindfulness skills, learning how to essentially sit in consciousness and allow things to come at you without necessarily doing anything with them unless, uh, uh, you know, it's helpful to do it. And uh, commitment behavior change processes, which are the things that you can do with your actual behavior to create meaning and purpose and to put it into your life's habits. And that combination of acceptance and mindfulness methods, commitment and behavior change methods, metaphorically, the combination of skills that allow you to sit as things come at you and to notice what's there, and then the skills to know how to shift into what you can do with your eyes, hands, and feet that's useful and helpful to you. That combination fosters a set of skills we call psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility is uh, essentially a hack of the way that this evolutionarily recent adaptation of the human mind clashes into these half a billion year old learning processes. And we have spent four and 40 years doing the hack where de- we have six processes and they're the smallest set that I know of that can do the most good in the most areas in all of behavioral science. Sounds grandiose, but I think I could actually defend that empirically. And, uh, so really what we're trying to do with ACT is chain people in the six little micro skills which are a combination of learning how to be cognitively open, emotionally open, conscious and aware in the present moment, focused on what on the qualities of being and doing that you want to put in your behavior and how to create habits based on that. Those six things are the psychological flexibility hack and we know in 3,000 studies or so that you get that wrong, your life's going down, you get that right, life's going up. And it's as simple as that. We have studies with literally thousands of people, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people over years, two years, five years, 10 years. And I can show you the data that in every area of living that you can name from winning a gold medal at the Olympics to being able to deal with your own anxiety or stepping up to a diet and exercise challenge to running your business. If you get those six wrong, you're going to be inhibited in your success. If you get them right, you're going to be fostered. So uh, that's the grand vision and grand claims that uh, ACT makes.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, It does sound grandiose, but um, it doesn't sound like magic, right? It's grounded in a lot of sort of institutions like mindfulness um, that seem pretty good. Uh, At least in my experience, uh, the mindfulness stuff has has helped a lot. I'm excited to dig into the rest of of ACT with uh, the values work um, and the commitment work. But uh, just the one piece of the mindfulness has surely allowed me to slow down a bit as those cards are flying towards my face and uh, uh, be less reactive um and sort of notice the funny patterns um, of my mind in, in trying to swat those kinds of things away too quickly.
1: Yeah, you know, the wisdom traditions, the spiritual traditions, the mindfulness traditions, mindfulness is in every spiritual and wisdom tradition. Don't be thinking it's just Buddhism. I mean, it's in the Christian mystics and the Kabbalah and the Sufis and the Hindus and on and on it goes, the Native American peoples, etc. So every uh spiritual and wisdom tradition, Ha- includes the processes that I just named. And that's, there's a good reason for that. They all emerge about the time that human language, gets rolling to the point that you actually start having written language and because of that. Now you've really created a problem for yourself. You know, it's one thing just to be able to, you know, hoot in a particular way, we call words that might bring others in the troop to do things for you. It's another to start writing your stories, telling stories about who you are, naming things.
0: So, apologies here to the listener. Uh, we had a couple of technical difficulties in the recording. So here we'll pick up just again. Yeah, you know, computers. Just like you were maligning technology and language. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Here, here again, we have issues with what we think is progress. Which I guess it. I guess your message is it is progress, but we have to figure out how to take the good with the bad, I suppose. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I, when I, I think what I wanted to say, um, I don't exactly remember where we got cut off, but I was surprised to open this book and to find that there was a whole bunch of science in the beginning. Uh, Cause I've read other books about anxiety and Normally they just kind of dive right in, but here was all of this sort of empirical justification. This whole like theoretical framework for why language in our minds cause us suffering, and uh, it was uh, yeah, it was surprising and and interesting to to read read about all of that.
1: Yeah, and you're reading a book that was written in 2005 of uh, Get Out of Mind Into Your Life. It is the book that. Is best known in ACT because it was written up in time in a five-page story, My 15 Minutes of Fame, back in February 2006 by the late John Cloud, uh, the reporter there. And uh, he and I actually together had this project for a new book that summarizes everything and really puts it in a, a story so that you don't have to get hit uh, you know, front, full frontal with the science. Uh, so a new book that came out in August called A Liberated Mind. Uh John died during the writing of it, so he ended up not being on it. But uh, uh if you I, I figured out a way to uh get the science story out in a way that's not as geeky. And um if people are interested in that, it also has a lot of practical things. Uh check out a liberated mind, uh four hundred and fifty page uh, book by uh by Penguin Avery. But um Commercial over. I think it actually is a really nice combination to have that book plus Get Out of Your Mind. It's the best I know how to do, anyway.
0: Yeah, I heard you speaking about it on another podcast um, recently and yeah, was I've very excited. I've been on a lot of them lately. Part of promoting uh, ALM, you know,
1: a liberated mind. And, uh, it's uh, The one that get out of your mind is more of a self-help book, and then I wanted to write one that was more of a think book meets a self-help book meets a science story meets a personal story so that people would know really how broadly this applies. And that's really close to the thing I started out with, Josh, which is that uh, you're opening a door to something that's really everybody – wants to learn. I mean, there isn't anyone, if you talk to them a little bit, who doesn't wonder why it's so hard to be human, and doesn't want to know, you know, how we can live full and vital lives. And um, so for the entire, however long history of this strange species called homo sapiens, we've been one at a time struggling with that. And some of the ancient answers, the mindfulness traditions, wisdom traditions, and so forth, were there before Western science. They're pretty darn good. They cover most of what Western science now shows is there. But now, on the Western science front, you can do things in a, written about in a liberated mind and, and get out of your mind in your life in minutes that sort of open a window to what you might have to do for days with contemplative practice. So. Contemplative practice and mindfulness work is, is the real deal, but it's also not something that was generated in the modern era and is designed from the beginning to be able to be put on the factory floor or to reach Joe Sixpack. I mean, who's doing those 10-day silent retreats?
0: Not you, enough you, of
1: us. Well, young people or rich people. That's it. You know, I mean, I, people or people who fall into the actual spiritual tradition. That's not enough. That's a tiny percentage. Those two together is a tiny percentage of the whole human population. And in places where it was developed, I mean, you go to Vietnam or to Cambodia or to, you know, Tibet or wherever, you know, it's the monks who are meditating. Normal people are farming and they're, I mean, heck, they're putting flags in cracks and giving alms to people to meditate. They're not meditating. In the West, we've tried to figure out a way to, to use these ancient traditions to do the heavy lifting. But we also have things now like, uh, you take care of the kids, I gotta go meditate. Like, uh, uh, that's not what that's for, dude. Uh, you know, where you really cut the methods away from their spiritual roots. Well, you mentioned values, for example. Anybody who learns meditation skills, let's say as part of Buddhist practice, if you learn it from the monks, they're going to talk about right action. They're going yeah. to talk about values, and but suppose you learn it as part of your uh, work stress uh, class. I guarantee you, there's not going to be any lectures about right action. Can't yeah, be. So you don't have the, yeah. the sanction to do it. You're not a monk you're not their spiritual leader so what does it turn into a method of relaxation self-soothing etc it's fine so far as it goes but it doesn't go far enough and in the west we we know how to take a lot of good things and trash that we could turn beautiful sunsets and turn it into a commercial enterprise you know i mean We could take beachfronts and make it all private, and you got to pay money to go swim. I mean, we know how to trash things, and we know how to trash the mindfulness traditions. I actually literally saw in a small uh, family-owned shop uh, a mindfulness burger. Oh, my God. (laughs) How was it? Dang it.
0: Come on. Come on. What are you doing? But, you know, that's how silly we are. So uh, you've you've picked on something that is super interesting to me, and is sort of the reason that I'm interested in act. And as someone who've had who's had a lot of anxiety and OCD around decision making, I've been thinking about these values as this sort of lighthouse or crystal ball that I'll sort of be able to substitute for ever having to think about uh, whether to take A or B as I you know walk the various forks sure. of my life. Um, and I'm not quite far enough in it, I don't think, to um, have gotten the values yet. But I, I know that certain exercises, including like writing your eulogy, um, maybe help you get to the discovery part of the values process. Um, is that the, yeah. right, on the right track? Yeah, you got to be careful about getting too
1: mindy about it because values is something that the whole of you knows how to do. But the problem-solving mind, it knows how to evaluate But evaluating is almost anti-values. I mean, that's judgment. That's just flat out figure out reason, pros and cons. And so until you've reined in the logical problem-solving mind a little bit, through diffusion skills, mindfulness skills, acceptance skills, it's almost not completely safe to do values work because the mind will grab it and say, "Oh, well, I know all about that. You know, you value this and this and this and this. And it's only a millisecond later that it's telling you and you fall short on this and this and this and this. And you're never going to be good at this and this and this and this. And next thing you know, you're instead of being lifted up, you're walking around with a, hundred pound, a thousand pound weight on your shoulders called your values. That's not what values are. Values are these vitalizing, liberating, motivating uh, processes of the qualities of being and doing that you want to put into your life between you and the person and the mirror, sue me if you don't like it. I mean, it, it's not a, a way to get applause. It's not a way to please mama. It's not a way to you know grab the brass ring or make a lot of money. It's the whole of you doing it. And there's, I know of only four really reliable ways in, and I can tell you what they are, and maybe even touch a little bit about how to do it. But the how to do it is, you know, in the books. Uh, I recommend both of those, actually, but uh, that I just mentioned. But if I can kind of take you through those four, just to yes. get you on to the journey. Okay, so one that's a little tricky is to walk inside your suffering, walk inside your pain, get pretty clear on it. Metaphorically, it's almost as if you're writing it down on a sheet of paper, and then flip the paper over and write down what does that suggest you care about. It's a little tricky. If you do it too mindy, you'll miss it. But inside your pain is something you're yearning for. It could be yearning for the freedom to feel. It could be yearning for contribution and competency. It could be yearning for being able to be present or to be able to understand. There's something in there often has to do with people. Uh, That's, that's an easy guide. Most values have something to do with people. That's just the kind of monkey we are. So I'll give you an example as I'm a panic disordered person in recovery, but the, at the height of my panic disorder, the really core of it was, you know, wanting to give talks, give lectures, be a good teacher, blah, 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 and feeling completely unable to do that. Well, these kind of social anxiety pieces that sometimes are part of panic disorder, you know, I've never met anybody who has social anxiety who doesn't yearn to be able to be with people in a way that's more uh, free to belong, to be part of the group. I've never met anybody. If you really wanted to be a hermit, you know, if social anxiety meant, oh, I, I can't stand being around people, why don't you just go be a hermit? You can do that. Nobody's going to you know, put you in jail for sitting in a cave in the hills. But the reason why we don't do that as social anxiety strugglers is that's not what we want. What we want is to be with people. And if you take the social anxiety and flip it over, you see it. If you take the panic disorder and flip it over where your feelings get so overwhelming, you you almost can't stand to feel at all, this is more like we're really close to things that are closer to depression. You flip it over. I see it as a yearning to feel. And then not knowing how to do it and getting so overwhelmed by these amplifying processes. So that's one. Take your pain, flip it over. Two, take your sweet spots, take the sweet moments. Think of the times we're in a particular domain. Man, it was it was awesome. There was a particular actual memory, something that actually happened, that lifted you up, carried you forward sweetened your tea, you know, something that was sweet, slow it down, unpack it. And you're going to find things in there that you really want to have in your behavior, not just as results, some things you'd want. Like you might say, oh, I want people to love me. Yeah. Okay. But isn't what you're really saying is love is of importance to me. And the real decision you have is, uh, chosen qualities of being and doing. So do you, these are the kind of the adverbs of your action and the, the they have more or lee on them usually. So you want to behave lovingly, you can do that. And it might attract people to you. You might actually end up being loved by others, but at least you will be loving yourself and loving life if you behave lovingly if love is of importance to you. So that's the sweet spot way. So we've got sour and sweet. So the third way in uh, is guides and heroes. If you you think about people you really look up to, whose lives matter to you, ideally people that you've actually known, you know, your your family, your teachers, therapists, coaches, uh, Mm -hmm. spiritual leaders, whatever. When you look up to somebody, you look up to somebody because of what they stand for. It's not because of the car they own, you know, whether or not they've, you know, have gold plated doorknobs in their house. It's not how big their bank account is. There's something about how they are in the world, I bet you, that drew you to them. And when you pick guides to really help you in a certain area, that's also true. So allow your mind to settle on your guides and, and, and really kind of savor and appreciate what they stood for and what they mean to you. And then unpack what that is. Boom you got things that you'd like to put in your behavior intrinsically. You want, you now have qualities of being and doing that you would like your life's moments to manifest. That's what values are. They're not goals. They're not objects. They're not things you can have and put in a box. They're a direction. It's like walking north. And um, your guides and heroes will, will guide you on that if you unpack it and look at what they mean to you. And then the third one is stories. It's a trickiest one, and I'm still kind of playing around with this. My colleague Frank Bond sort of put me onto it, and I really like it, which is to think of your life as like writing a story. In the next chapter, you don't get to pick who the characters are, or what the incidents are, but you do get to pick what the theme of the chapter is or where it fits in the larger arc of the story. You get to decide whether or not you're writing a tragedy or a hero's journey. You get to decide whether or not your role in your own life fits with your values or not. And if that were true, just looking at where we are right now, being careful, you don't get to choose the, ca- the characters. You don't get to choose the challenges. You get to choose the theme. You get to choose who that huh. character called you. Uh,
0: is. Okay. So what would an example of a theme be? So, you know, it's kind of, for example,
1: like, uh, let's say you're writing a story and um, the hero's got this OCD problem show up, big time, boom, there it is. Well, that's not too different than Luke Skywalker, you know, gets this little message and, uh, you know, goes out in a Speedo and comes back and his family's been, you know, uh, eliminated or captured or whatever. And he's just a normal person. It's kind of like, uh, and there's this, uh, you know, this message, I may be mangling some of the details of star Wars, but you get the point that, you know, in the hero's journey, a normal person, usually Frodo or, you know, a normal person. Suddenly gets visited with a challenge, and initially it's like, no, 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 not me. No, I can't do that. It's too big. No, no. Or they do dumb things. Okay, I'll uh, ask this one to do it. Turns out that's a really bad person to ask or whatever. And then somewhere in there you get like, okay, this is my challenge. And usually there's a dark night of the soul, and then you find some strength within, and you step up to it, or you have like social things happen, like friends show up, you know, you realize that you have strength without two, you're part of a tribe, a community, one version or another. And somewhere in there, that normal person says yes to the journey and embraces, I'm gonna do this. This is my responsibility. You know, I'm gonna carry the ring and throw it into the crack of doom, or I'm gonna be the one to challenge the emperor or whatever. And now we're off on a quest and by committed action and using all of your strengths, you know, you walk through these moments one at a time seeking out after that, you know, outcome, that journey, that, those values you might say. And in the normal kind of epic stories, you know, you're able to take charge. You, you know, face your sea of troubles and by, uh, fighting the good fight, you overcome overcome them. And then you return to a kind of normal. That's the hero's journey. Okay. Well, those are the psychological flexibility processes. Normal conscious person not buying into a big conceptualized self hits challenges of language and thought, these internal challenges that the external world visits on you, finds a way to find a different sense of self that brings you more fully into the present, that's open to those challenges and can focus on what's important, that is what your values are, and to create the kind of behavior change that you need to accomplish that. So everybody listening to me is on a hero's journey if they choose to be. You all have challenges, but what kind of story are you going to write? You're gonna, you want to write a tragedy? It's damn easy to do. All you got to do is start saying no. Just say no to your own experience. Or run away. Or my life will start when? Or... Uh, someone else will fix me if I – I mean, the routes into a tragedy or myriad. The routes forward on a hero's journey are unknown. When you commit to a hero's journey, when you start saying yes to life, you don't know what the next challenge is. You might get a text that a dear person to has died while we were talking. There's no guarantee in life. you want that, go buy a washing machine. But what you do have is agency. What you do have is authorship. We even say authentic. You're writing your life story. Now, I get with my science hat on, you have a history. I'm not saying you're literally free to do anything. But the closest we can get to what's true of the psychology of human beings is that you're free to choose your values and where to put your behavioral development. That's the hero's journey. And there's nothing in a hero's journey that says it'll take six months, two months, 12 months. You don't know. The quest is the quest. So, and it's vitalizing, you know. I mean, we watch these movies. We read these stories for a reason. It's sort of like, wow, it's cool. It's so full of life. And that's it. It's full of life. Life is full of life. You know, so how about instead of, for example, uh, you know, writing the, and then I had the OCD story. How about, and then I had the OCD and I started an anxiety podcast. And I started attracting people to these cool books I'm reading. And I started helping people around the world lift their lives up. You know, they, you, you can do that. You don't have to live life small. And so uh, that's that fourth one, that tricky one of authorship, of taking responsibility for the theme, but not the elements, just like you're doing by starting this podcast. What if you get hardly any listeners? Well, then you'll have another challenge, won't you? <laughs> uh, that is that a problem? Now, in your story, you don't get to, and then I started the podcast, and two days later, I was on Oprah and somebody gave me three million dollars to write a book and then you know this is not a hero's journey dude this is not something you can choose you can put yourself in the way of that kind of success and it might happen but if you start pursuing that kind of success you've been around people like that does it is it attractive to you is that the way you want to live your life so you could It's this really knife's edge deal of how to be whole and free and to aspire and care and to live life to its fullest, while at the same time letting go, letting go, letting go of the things that you don't control, which are quite a lot of things. You don't know how many seconds you got on the planet. You don't know what challenges you're gonna get tomorrow, Never mind over a long period of time but you do get to decide what is this journey about? Is this about love and contribution and lifting others up? Is this about sacrifice and caring? Or is this about selfishness? Is this about greed? Is this about fear? You can you can choose different stories to write.
0: So those are the four that I know. And so, uh, there may be others. Um, I think all that's, wonderful i really resonated with the guides one picking your guides yeah. and also the the flipping of the things you're afraid of to find out what you care about I yeah that's, that's going to work really well i want to push back on one of them on the uh the hero's journey because i know for myself in particular uh it's a very attractive idea of being yeah. a sort of hero i think for someone who has ocd or anxiety it could at least in my case, become a situation where you have no choice but to be the hero, to knock down every fear, to be Superman, to not be human oh, anymore. Yeah. So I, I'm i sure there's wisdom in here somewhere. But I wonder, is there room in the hero's journey or an act in general for not always being heroic or, or oh, not yeah. always holding yourself to the oh, highest yeah. standard? You know, and the artists
1: who are onto this first, I mean, the poets and the artists and the You know, even before the therapists, maybe even before the spiritual religious leaders, they are on to it, you know. And there's lots of stories about how, you know, and then the superhero wanted to be super in all areas. And then here's what happened. And it almost is immediately everything goes bad. You know, it goes in the wrong direction. Like opening up to your own limitations, opening up to finitude, accepting your foibles, making room for failure, you know. You can't name a rich story a rich one. That doesn't include that. I mean, you think about, uh, we're back to our heroic uh, stories. They are not the kind of stories that your mind wants to write. And here's this person with great abilities who shot all of the dragons out of the sky without missing a single shot. Nobody would watch that freaking movie, dude. Boring. That's a very mindy kind of uh, absolutist, evaluated, non-human, robot-like, judged, uh, you know, that's pride talking. That's not life as it's lived. Life as it's lived is slip and fall and slip and fall and slip and fall and slip and fall And get up, get up, get up, get up. You came into life knowing how to do it. You know that kids fall down while they're learning to walk 110 times a day while toddling 10 football fields? And they do it day after day after day after day before they can walk with proficiency. And even then, they can't even make a turn. That's why they're called toddlers because they have to rock back and forth just to be able to turn a corner. You know, so what if... A real hero's journey is like that. And if if the hero thing pulls for perfectionism and all that kind of thing, then what if a real life journey that's about what you care about is like that? Would that be okay? Can you slip slip and fall and slip and fall and slip and fall and slip and fall and still persist? Well, dude, you did it. You've done it a thousand times. It's how you learned how to grab an object and put it in your mouth. Just watch what babies do. They'll work for weeks and weeks and weeks for the simplest little thing. And we, with our mindy thing, we want to spring forth from the head of Zeus and be perfect now. Well, good luck with that. I've never met anybody who has any proficiency or any competence in any area who arrived at it that way. That's that mindy perfectionism uh, kind of substitute for the human journey that's full of inadequacies and failures and redoing, redoing, redoing. You know, like if you uh, you have an addiction problem, you want to walk out of it, what is the single biggest predictor that you will? How many times you try? Hmm. That's an empirical fact. It's the people who try, slip, and say, see, I told you I can't do it. Okay, dude, are you, you're writing an I can't do it story. Is that the kind of values you got? Or you got the kind of values that are more like north is of importance. There's a big rock there. Whoops, I fell down. The rock is still there. There's whoops, I fell down. The rock is still there. I think I'm going to go around the rock. Oh, but you're not going north. Yeah, but I'll get back to north right now. I want to get around this freaking rock. Uh, So learning how to walk a human journey that includes things that short term your mind will tell you is just what a big loser you are, is exactly how you learn how to walk the courageous lives that people walk. When you have a mental health problem, life's inviting you to walk, walk a courageous life. You don't have to say yes to it. You can say no, but it'll have a cost.
0: Okay, I I hear what you're saying. I think it makes sense. Um,
1: I mean, and if it and one thing, if it doesn't resonate or if you have a sense, there's danger there. Take what's useful, leave the rest. Uh, because different people respond in different ways. To but the flexibility processes, one thing that's cool about them is there's like this, com- this common core that we know is helpful. One way or another, figuring out how to be more emotionally open. One way or another, figuring out how to be more cognitively flexible and aware. You, know, you click through the six flexibility processes. That's one reason why I don't really care very much about ACT as a technology or as a named protocol or even as a name at all. You know, in in our traditions, in the ACT traditions, you want to be a recognized trainer. First thing you have to do is swear that you won't anoint therapists as having passed the test. And number two, you won't make any proprietary claims. And number three, you're willing to give things away to others who want to call them different things and use them in different ways. So, like we had a president of our society who called ACT mindfulness-based emotional intelligence training. Why? Because he worked with business and industry, and he'd done emotional and um, emotional intelligence work, and so he wanted to call it that. So I thought well, that's awesome. We're going to elect him president. You know. So it's not an. ACT is not about ACT uberalis. It's about empowering people to to work on their core psychological flexibility skills and to add to them other skills. I mean, attachment, compassion, other things that are maybe not on that list, but are linked to it. But if I can give people the 20% that does the 80%, they can work on the rest of the 20% in a hundred different ways. And over time we'll get better. Maybe we even change the model. That's fine. But uh, in the 40 year journey that about 10,000 people have been on, who've been developing act, we think we have a pretty good set that we can put into people's lives that uh, pretty reliably, however you get there. Uh, a metaphor I use when I'm talking to people in workshops is shooting a basket. There's people in the NBA hall of fame who shoot a basket the way that any coach who does anything in basketball would say, do not do that. Why? Because they played street ball and they were short. (laughs) The only way they could get it over the Giants in front of them is to shoot in a ridiculous way. And then some coach was smart enough when they actually got drafted to say, you know, that's something you're not supposed to do, but by golly, the guy puts the ball through the hoop. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they let him alone, and he went into the NBA Hall of Fame. In the same way, I don't really care if you're following act or, or anything. I, what I care about is are you moving forward and is your life getting bigger? And are you able to put your values into practice in a way that lifts you up and the lives of those you love? If you can do that right on dude, as far as I can tell, it's what we came here to learn.
0: I I think that sounds good. So maybe a couple of quick questions uh, before you take off. Um, and I'll just tell them both to you so you can answer them in however Mm -hmm. much time you want to give to each one is, um, what is your opinion of of using the workbook uh, alone versus with a therapist? And the second one is, given that act um, sounds so great, why, why don't more people, or maybe they do, and I'm just late to the party, but why don't more people know about it? Those are both good questions. Uh, You know, I
1: think if you have You know, you have a really complex problem and stuff. It's usually good to find a a therapist to work with. But therapists are not the end-all and be-all. And and frankly, there's not enough therapists to go around. I mean, they're just not in lots of parts of the world. We have a list of people who've done some ACT training who are willing to say that they'll do ACT as best they can, at least. And if you put in a bit.ly link, if you know how those work, bit.ly forward slash, and then write down... Find capitalize the word find and not capitalized. Act ACT all capitals therapist, not capitalized. Find an act therapist. it'll show you about 5,000 around the world. You can search by your country, city, whatever. Uh, however, uh, you know we've done randomized trials of a number of act books. And what we know, and not just books, websites, apps, all the things that are out there, what we know is that uh, they can work. And if they move the psychological flexibility processes, um, they work about 80% of what you get from uh, working with therapists. How do you know you're moving the flexibility processes? Well, I would go and take some of the flexibility tests. If you go to uh, StephenCHayes.com. You can go into uh, uh, a part of my uh, website where it has over in the liberated mind section. It has a list of uh, psychological flexibility measures, and you can take some general ones, specific ones, and get a sense. In a liberated mind, I do a little bit of that, and also in get out of your mind, do a little bit of that. Uh, walking through what, how do you know how flexible you are? So that's a, another way is to use these additional supports there are public uh, support groups that cost nothing. There's one inside groups.io called act for the public. There's also Facebook groups and things of that kind. And uh, the one, the one that's in groups.io I've followed now for almost 10 years. I started it as a Yahoo group all those years ago. And some of these folks I've just watched their lives over a period of many years now, you know, a couple thousand people on that list and there are some people who are freaking act experts. I mean, I've met a few. I've actually, you know, when I go to, a, I, I, have known them for so long. I say, can I meet with you? Can I go to New York? I've, I don't know if they say where they live and stuff. And these are like awesome human beings who just, just normal people reading self-help books. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's not a panacea. I'm not promising anything that you, you know, you can't deliver other than we've done the research. And so, uh, if you can't find a therapist, you can't afford a therapist, et cetera, I think it's perfectly fine to walk into the work in some of these other ways that uh, ideally that's supported at least by your peers. But, um, you know, sometimes people are poor or they don't have access, and, you know, we've tried to step up to that. Uh, we, there's even now studies with um, Things like the World Health Organization just recently did a study with South Sudanese refugees in Uganda where they took an ACT cartoon book, ACT recordings that were each about five minutes long, and gave them to the refugees in an eight-session protocol by illiterate uh, health workers. And mostly were working with illiterate people and got effects that were as large as any of the self-help general self-help studies done in the uh, developed world so uh, I don't underestimate people you know there's there's ways forward now why is an act what better known what well you know there's various reasons you've probably heard of CBT and act is one of the most popular new forms of CBT I say new it's almost 40 years old but I mean, if you were to go to Britain, let's say, and you join the CBG Society, the largest special interest group by far, with more than a quarter of all the members in that society are ACT people. But A, we don't care about the name, so sometimes you have to look carefully to see, is it really ACT or might be called something different? Uh, B, you know, there's always resistance. You know, some folks don't like how empirical we are, who are more humanistic, existential. Uh, Some folks uh, don't like that we're not quite the same as traditional CBT. The CBT folks uh, sometimes don't. Uh, Some of the early things, actually, when Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life came out and was written up in that story by John Cloud, John wanted to have it really land as an exciting thing. So he wrote it as a war between the rebels inside CBT and the traditionalists. And so they took a picture of me on my motorcycle. It had red eye in it. Any photographer, never mind one working for time, knows how to remove red eye. Push a little button. They didn't remove the red eye. They wanted me looking like, you know, something out of some sort of, uh, you know, James Dean movie or something. Dating myself. But you know what I mean. And they even put underneath the picture, The Rebels. <laughs> <laughs> then they got poor Tim back, you know, Aaron Beck, the father of cognitive therapy, a hero of mine. I sent him my first PhD student to work with him. I mean, he is not my enemy. John wrote it as if I, he was. And John went there three times before he finally got poor Tim to say something like, uh, because act as part of what's called the third wave of CBT. And he said something like, the last time I heard about the third wave, it was past life regression. And then they took a picture of Tim with his bow tie and that quote and underneath it they put the words The Establishment. (laughs) Well, that's fine to sell magazines but the CBT colleagues wanted to kill me. (laughs) They wanted to wring my neck because I was going after their hero. He's my hero too. But some of his ideas were wrong I think. Well, that's the way science works. Everything moves forward. There's lots of stuff in ACT and RFT that's wrong. We just don't know what it is yet. We will. We'll figure it out, or the kids will figure it out. And I encourage them to try to figure it out. Let's find out what's wrong fast. That's how science develops. But anyway, so the reasons are myriad. But you start sniffing around. It's like deciding to buy a yellow Volkswagen. You suddenly see that there's hundreds on the road. Just after this conversation, the people walk through, get out of your mind in your life or a liberated mind. Uh, you're going to see it everywhere. You're going to see it, not just therapy wise, but I, you know, like if, can I tell a little, quick little story about my son's uh, favorite cartoon?
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. Well, he has, he loves this cartoon called Steve, Steven's universe. Uh, it's had seven seasons. I guess they might do an eighth and a new one. He's kind of growing out of cartoons, but it's an awesome cartoon. It's really a cool cartoon. Well, uh, in the cartoon, there is a kind of a wise, almost like a mindfulness-like character who works with this little guy, Steve, Stephen, who the, the main character, and uh, he's accidentally done something that is really kind of uh, embarrassing and shaming, and he's struggling with it in this episode. And she sings a song called uh, uh, this is, "Let's See What Is It Called." It's Here comes a thought google here comes a thought and the lyrics are they start out with things like uh, flexibility love and trust and it walks through it's got all these kind of act references well that i go to the wiki page and they say this is a song that so and so i forget the person who wrote it based on act and in the uh, cartoon Stephen actually wears a bald wig i'm bald right before he sings this song, how many kids have listened to this Here Comes a Thought song? 20 million people. Oh, my God. So I don't care if people know that it came from ACT. I don't care if they know Stephen Hayes as a name. We're all going to die. We're all going to be forgotten. But can we put something into our culture that will be there for our kids or the kids of our kids or the kids of our kids of our kids When they are struggling with OCD, when they have a panic disorder, when they get depressed, when they develop an addiction, or when they have a cancer diagnosis, or they are trying to achieve at sports, or they are doing, you know, can we do that? And the answer is, yeah, we can do that. So um, when you've actually gone through the act stuff and start looking around, you're going to see it in movies and songs and books and In part because, of course, part of that wisdom is being drawn from movies and songs. You know, this is part of a cultural process. So uh, that that answers your question.
0: That's a great answer. And uh, if I could just say, you know, um, it was really nice to hear you say that there are probably things in ACT that are wrong and you're excited for the next generation to uh, find out what those things are. Because in science, people accuse those with big theories of not having a way to be wrong, right? Like Karl Marx yeah. or something like that. So to have the uh, courage uh, to say that there are things yet to be discovered within the framework uh, makes yeah, me sound Yeah, you need to say that and you need to ongoing. say it
1: loud and you just say it to the young people and you need to say, you pick it up. But I also say to young people, but learn the earlier stuff, be responsible, you know, walk through it in a step-by-step way. You know, you don't get just because you're new Because sometimes people don't understand how long it takes. You know, like you ask the question, why is it better known? You know, I've worked on it for 40 years, almost 40 years. And so, you know, and people will say, oh, that's flash in the pan. That's just the new stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Yeah, this is the flash in the pan, new shiny object that took 40 years to develop. You know, it just makes me giggle. Um, and, And that's cool. I get But I say to young people, you know, settle down for the long haul. You don't know how long you got, but however long you do have, let's do something that's of substance and will matter. And if that means it's going to take you 10 years or it's going to take 20, then that's what it's going to take. And long run, that's what matters. So play for the long run, play for the substance, and let the rest take care of itself. There's plenty of fame and money and attention to go around. And don't be grabby about it. And sometimes youngsters don't understand that. They look at you and they say, I want to be like you. Yeah, but you should have seen me 30 years ago when I'd give a talk and five people would show up. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, that was the journey that brought us here. And stick, stay true to yourself. Walk that journey and uh, see what shows up. Life might surprise you.
0: Uh, well, Stephen, that was awesome. And uh, even though it took you 40 years and maybe seems a little stale, it's very exciting for me. So so thanks so much for, uh, for sharing it and for, for taking your time. I, I really am truly, truly grateful uh, yeah, for yeah. being able to listen to you and, and, and hear, hear from you. And well, from dude, you, you got an
1: anxiety I problem. I mean, come on, this is my fellow traveler. I, you know, (laughs) as my people, this is me. And so, uh, you know, I was really happy to be able to do it. And I hope uh, your listeners uh, found something in here that's worthwhile.
0: That is awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. Take care my friend. So that's the whole episode. Uh, I know it was long, but there were just too many pearls of wisdom in here to get rid of anything. Thanks so much for listening and making it to the end. In the show notes, you'll find links to all the books discussed and other links on the web mentioned in this episode. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.